0: The world is a hard, cold place at the best of times, made harder by the fact that our legal, political, economic and social systems have been built to oppress those of queer identity, be they trans, gay, bi, pan, asexual, non-binary, two-spirit, you name it. But have hope. I see younger generations, such as my brothers, who's only 8 years younger than I, exposed to far more queer culture than I ever was, and thus educated on queer issues more than I ever was. And it brings me hope. If we continue to celebrate and share queer stories, telling them to our friends and family, being open and honest and creating safe spaces, so that all those around us know that they are loved and accepted for who they are, then we can ensure that the society of the future is a kinder, more compassionate version of our own. Being a queer storyteller, it is important to me that my stories represent, even if just by a fraction, the staggeringly beautiful variety of gender and sexuality I see around me. It is important that I write stories in which queers play prominent roles but which are not always trawling the same old queer story tropes. Incidental queerness is a core element of my world building. But storytelling is also a place for me to be queer. It allows me to imagine new lives for myself, new worlds in which I can be who I am at heart without having to worry about what anyone else thinks. Happy Pride Month to all of the beautiful queers out there, and all those who have helped me on my own journey. Happy Pride every month, every year, always. And remember, trans rights are human rights. Welcome to Stories from the Heart, the podcast for tall tales and fantastical fiction. Short stories the likes of which you might have once heard a wandering bard tell to a group of villagers gathered around the fire. Explore the history of storytelling in bonus series The Wandering Bard. Or escape your surroundings with a brand new story, written and performed by me, Callum Bannerman, on the last Sunday of every month. Historical, romantic, science fiction or fantasy, these are tales to transport you, doorways, into another world. Hi, I'm Cal, and if you're new to Stories from the Hearth, then there's a few things you might like to know. This podcast is an experimental artistic space, kind of like a painter's studio, or a DJ's headphones. It is a place where I can try new things, make art and share it with others in the hope that it might bring some comfort, value, and escapism to their lives. It is also a means to an end. After all, it has been my dream ever since I was wee to tell stories for a living. Just like the wandering bards of old, who I read about in my history books and fantasy novels. Each episode of Stories from the Hearth features a stand-alone work of fiction, performed to an immersive soundscape, which allows you to lose yourself in the tale. Usually, the stories are short enough to be contained within one episode, but a handful of them are split over two. If this particular episode isn't your jam, don't worry, there are heaps of stories to choose from, and no two are the same. This podcast is also a safe and inclusive space for all which means that its stories actively embrace queerness and otherness, right alongside more mainstream walks of life. If you're enjoying it, then please do tell your friends and review it on your favourite podcast app, Spotify or iTunes. If you're really enjoying it, then you can support Stories from the Hearth on Patreon and help yourself to early access, behind-the-scenes insights, bonus content, physical copies of the stories Shoutouts and much, much more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash stories from the hearth podcast or hit the link down below. And speaking of shoutouts, a huge thanks to these fine folks who help make Stories from the Hearth possible. My warmest thanks to Nick, Vivian, Jen, Charlie, Rob, Sandy, Jane, Ruthie, and Molly. Now, Come and gather round the fire, for I've got a story to tell. This is episode number 10, Lights Out. I think we were all a little disappointed with how things ended for the human race. There was nothing Hollywood about it. No explosions, no T-virus, a distinct lack of tsunamis, asteroids and solar flares. Gojira didn't make an appearance and neither did Thanos. Not one popular culture reference fit the bill. Our unique flaw was a desire to frame the end of the world as perpetually impending. My Gigi was a psychologist and my Baba an anthropologist, so together I'm sure they could have explained why people did this. But I? Well, I tell stories. I can give you only stray thoughts and muddled theories. By my reckoning, We conjured catastrophes because we desired something to aim for. The promise of a way out should all go to hell anyway. The end of the line provided a tangible importance to our lives. Instead of counting ourselves as one among 9.8 billion successful sperm-egg combos, destined to live out a life of consumption, procreation and hibernation, we brought into being a reason to exist. Armageddon. It was written in the holy books before they went out of fashion, and subsequently in tabloid headlines. Blockbuster movies envisaged it with a hundred different scenarios, each set just a decade or two in the future. Novels and poetry imagined life post-apocalyptic, dystopias and utopias bereft and brimming with the resilience of the apex species homo sapiens. We humans were a global society of obsessive compulsives, guzzling down Mayan calendars, millennium bugs, stock market crashes, global warming, atom bombs. When one passed and nothing changed, we called it survival, not idiocy. We were still casting stones of the apocalypse in our moving picture rooms, the faces of neurotically anxious children illuminated by the light from their pocket mirrors, when first it became apparent that the end of the human race was already underway. Apparently, a news story ran about how the Afghan poppy farmers of Helmand province were experiencing a crop blight. The following week, NHK's Japanese-Afghan correspondent reported that it wasn't a blight, but a massive crop failure. Two months later, and no farmer worth their plough could get poppy plant to sprout. Of course, the moralists and policymakers whooped for joy. No more poppy meant no more H., whilst the junkies and pharmaceutical boards got the sickness. My grandparents told me that the failure of the poppy crop soon spread worldwide, with explanations as varied and as colourful as the responses to it, but no real concrete evidence on theories either way. Though, they also said that few people really took notice. Only later, when they were in their thirties and pregnant with my mum, when not just poppy, but wheat, carrot, daikon, sweet potato, cotton grape and coca crop were as extinct as the bumblebee, did it dawn on Earth's dwindling human population that somewhere down the generations, humankind had taken a turn for the complacent. According to the others, Lights Out was a gradual, dull and largely undramatic episode in human history. They said that the last volt of grid electricity trembled through the last underground conductor to power the last lamp by my mum's last bed in a maternity ward the day I was born. Some of the others called me by a name, which meant the first light of a new day. They said I was blessed not to have known the old life, not to be able to mourn for it, But I think my father always disliked that name. My mother was part of that old life, and for the few years I knew my dad, he was often sad about that. Sad or angry. Angry at the world. Angry at his parents' generation or grandparents' generation. Angry at me. After my dad left. The rest of Tokyo seemed to collapse under the weight of his absence, like maybe he'd been holding more than just memories on his pale, spindly shoulders. And so I began telling stories, hoping perhaps that if I remembered his world vividly enough, he might in some way rejoin mine. Hoping that if enough people shared my stories, Together we might prop back up the brittle bones of our home. You see, us survivors love stories of the old world, more so perhaps than our own memories. It seems odd in a world where we must scavenge and hunt for our food, when at thirteen I enjoyed my last taste of tinned edamame, by then already years out of date. Odd that stories should hold any currency. And yet, they do. (laughs) Currency. My grandparents told me all about that concept, about money, before they died. They said that in their time, the earth had overflown with food. Food and music and transportation and space and technology and medicine. Healthy living, I guess you'd call it. Seems they had enough of everything that no one... have wanted for anything. But then there was this thing called money. Money, Gigi said, was a number you were assigned at birth. Apparently, if you were lucky, over time you could increase that number a couple of digits. Of course, then there were the pandemics, the earthquakes, and wars, when almost everyone's number dropped, though I never really understood why. Anyway, Though there were enough resources to go around, in my grandparents' time you could only actually enjoy them when your number got high enough, and for most people, it never did. Today we don't have money, no currency of any kind really, we take what we can and share it with whoever's left. But stories, well, if the gift of storytelling could be likened to money, then I guess you could say my number's pretty high. In exchange for a good story, especially a story from before lights out, folk will give almost anything. After all, how do you think I came by the edamame beans? Life is slow in what remains of Tokyo, a crumbling collection of monoliths most of us just call the Old Place. For a long time, the Old Place has been a good place to call home. In the guts of the city, massive storage tankers beneath empty 7-Elevens, concealed vaults in the bellies of mansions or in the subterranean levels of hospitals, we discovered reserves of fuel, food, medicines. Some of us found weapons stashed in evidence lockups or police riot rooms, which we used for hunting. In supermarkets and in restaurants were stores of canned goods stacked alongside immeasurable litres of cooking oil, which at a push could power generators. All said and done, the transition from lights out to the lives we lead now was at least softer in the old place than for those stuck elsewhere. To most survivors in the early years, nothing outside of petrol, oil, cans, and pills mattered much. But to me, the real treasures could be found where few cared to look. Refuse dumps, for one. Yumenoshima and Uminomori. Trash Heap Islands in Tokyo Bay were the regular sites of my scavenger hunts. Beaches, too, and the banks of the Sumida often excited me more than, say, an overlooked storage cupboard in a grocery store. I had my grandparents' tales, of course, but by the time I was old enough to really listen, their stories had become confused, half-remembered or all the way forgotten. The treasures I uncovered trawling the shores of places like Umenoshima, painted a fuller picture of life in the old world than their stories ever could have. Among my finds, which I keep now in neat stacks and arrangements like the ancients used to keep their houses, are thousands of flimsy, opaque plastic hoops. Perhaps jewellery, perhaps packaging, or... I like to think, just maybe a part of wedding rites. The couple symbolically joined at the wrist, bound in plastic. Branded pocket mirrors are abundant too. Decorated with bitten apples, embossed buttons, camera lenses and unrecognisable words like Samsung and Huawei. It seems, of course, that there was once a way to charge them, turn them on just like most things from before. Whatever they were, it seems clear to me that the ancients were captivated by their own reflection. I find a lot of brightly coloured figurines of hard plastic, too. Anamorphic characters, metal men, slender, white-skinned dolls with blonde hair and blue eyes and no discernible genitalia. A lot of these odd idols wield weaponry, some of which is like that described in my Gigi's stories of war, some resembling the guns we found in those police stations and army barracks, some entirely alien. Effigies, I imagine, or tokens, meant to ward off the bloodlust they represented. Perhaps the others bear the likenesses of old world gods, prayed to, in hopes of salvation from invented cataclysms. Of all my finds, though, there is one which I covet more than the rest Fuji films. These are extremely hard to come by, and no wonder, they are immeasurably precious and almost impossible to describe without having seen one for yourself. On a rectangle of card about the size of a hand is printed on one side the word Fujifilm, and on the other, a picture. Strange, but not impossible, right? Objects called books have survived too, and some of these hold pictures as well. But here's the thing. With all of the garbage I've searched through, there are always patterns, always recurrences, the plastic wedding bands, for example, are all alike. The totem figurines, often part of a series. I even have several identical copies of the same illustrated book predictions of an apocalypse called Attack on Titan. But Fuji films are different. Every single one of them is different each picture totally and utterly unique, whether they share common traits or not. And get this, the glossy images are often of people. Ancient people. People in bars, restaurants, public parks. Hundreds of people, intermingling on the busy streets of a fantastical Tokyo, crisp and clean and functioning. Healthy people. Happy people. Of course, At first, I took them to be paintings. Excruciatingly realistic paintings, sure, but paintings all the same. Except you can't wash these images off. You can't smudge or alter them as you might a painting. There is no texture to the things. Fujis are exactly smooth, like they were just made that way. And then, one day... Raiding an empty apartment block off of Koishikawa Marshes, formerly Koishikawa Botanical Gardens if the fading signs are ought to go by, I found a Fuji which changed everything. (music) Under the awnings of a whitewashed cafe, sat at a circular table shiny with metal, one shaven leg curled over the knee of the other, was pictured a woman. From between two fingers of her right hand, she dangled a thin white stick, about two inches long, something I recognised as a cigarette, having found countless stubs of the things, acetate filters outliving the tobacco plant by many decades. In her left hand, she clutched one of those fancy pocket mirrors, she wore a wide and floppy hat, her eyes hidden behind a pair of heavy sunglasses, and her face was tilted slightly from the focal point of the image, perhaps shy. Despite it all, I recognised her. She was my grandma, my Baba, only younger, perhaps as young as I was in that moment. It was. it was unmistakably her. Those were her wide cheekbones, her threadbare eyebrows, the way she held her cigarette the same as how she used to finger kindling, absent mindedly, as we huddled around the fire. Without doubt, the blotched scarring on the woman's upper arm was the result of injuries Baba had sustained as a child, at the mercy of a neighbour's dog. Somehow, though I could hardly believe my eyes, in finding that Fuji film, I learned of their true value. They were not rendered images of an imagined world. They were snapshots. Real, genuine moments of history. Captured by some old world device, I guess. A, a reflection in a pocket mirror, perhaps. Captured and transferred to material by some forgotten art. Though my grandma was long gone her face fading from memory with each passing year, now suddenly she had been returned to me, preserved eternally in my hands. I don't remember crying, but I do remember the exhaustion, the difficulty with which I finally dragged myself from that bunkyo apartment after hours spent trying to find more memories, believing wholeheartedly that I would find a Fuji of my parents, if only I searched long enough, hard enough. People come to me now from far and wide. They hear of the woman called the first light of a new day, the one who resides in the old place, and when they reach me, they don't know what to say, but I do. That's why they come after all. And I begin always with a picture captured on the reverse of a Fuji film. A woman at a table, gentle smile on her lips, my Baba, and many of them weep. They ask how it could be possible that she is both there in my hand and yet gone from this earth. They want the same for themselves. They feel the way I felt as I crawled hands and knees from the Koishikawa marshes, my world at once enlightened and shattered. And so we look, together through my stack of maybe 100 Fujis collected over the years. We take time with each, and I relay the stories behind them. It doesn't matter if the stories are real or not. It doesn't matter how close I am to the reality stored in those images. All that matters to my visitors is the reanimation of the picture which my stories allow. Of course, they all hope to find in my fujis a certain someone, a long-lost relative, a friend, an acquaintance, anyone from before the darkness. And some... I remember a woman, her back bent stiff, elbows grinding audibly as she stroked the faces, young and hopeful which peered out at her from the faded cards. She had travelled hundreds of miles on foot from the mountain holdouts of Niigata Prefecture to the urban sprawl of old Tokyo, just to taste the old world. And there, midway through the pile of memories, she found herself. Barely nineteen years old, face pressed against her wife-to-be, though, she told me, back then they had not yet uncovered their love for each other. I remember expecting the tears I'd seen in others, and yet the old lady had shed none. She only looked at me, bowed in thanks and smiled. Then she placed the Fuji face down atop the viewed pile and continued flicking through the others. I remember telling her, Somewhat dumbfounded that the Fuji was hers, that she could keep it, that she should. But she just laughed and shook her head. You should have it, she said, her voice a whisper. Another story to tell. Then she took my hand, and though her eyes were cataract clouds, somehow I knew how deeply she saw They are always with us, you know, whether you can see them or not. It is a gift beyond any to see her face again. But she was always there. She was always here. She gestured then to the air, the concrete, the weeds growing around us. Whoever it is you ache for, my dear, they are in everything you touch. Everything you see, hear, breathe. You need only open your heart. And as quickly as she had entered my life, the old woman left. I remember walking with her to the edges of the old place, past which grew only jungle and wasteland. Her journey back north would be arduous, and I remembered wondering if she hoped to make it. As she took her leave, she turned one last time and spoke. Oh, and sweetheart, she said. Yes, they're called photographs. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Hearth. Today's story, in a bit of a break from the norm, is actually one which I wrote quite a long time ago. Usually each episode is a story that I write specifically for the podcast, but this one actually comes from maybe as long ago as 2015. I remember that I wanted to write a story which examined the kind of coming of the end of the world which, I think, is actually a reality. I don't think that all of these massive, Hollywood-esque cataclysms and apocalypses which we envisage are ever going to happen. Sure, the dinosaurs were wiped out by the meteor that crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, but events like that are so rare that when we think, oh, you know, the world is going to collapse because of the millennium bug, the Mayan calendar predicts the end of the world, or, or, you know, this zombie apocalypse is going to happen, I just don't believe any of that. I think it makes for great storytelling, but I think that what will actually happen is that we will just consume and stumble our way out of existence. I really feel that what will actually happen is a slow, dull, kind of boring series of famines and water shortages and pandemics until the human race is left extinct, or on the verge of extinction. That was the impetus for this story, and then I thought, in this fictional lights-out period of human history, I wondered how those future beings, how those future survivors would think of us. What would they make of our gluttonous, greedy society? What would they make of our phones, which in this story the protagonist knows only as pocket mirrors? Or of plastic figurines and pictures and TVs? What would a future society make of all this when they were living in such scarcity? Thank you for listening to this month's Story from the Hearth. If you liked what you heard, please do subscribe and share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone you know who could use just a half hour's respite from the chaotic energies of the everyday. You can also now rate podcasts on Spotify, so if you're listening to it there, why not drop us some stars? If you wish to support the podcast more directly, please head to my Patreon. By hitting the link in the description down below, or heading to patreon.com forward slash Stories from the Hearth podcast. Similarly, you can check out the podcast's Instagram, Twitter, website, and email address via the links below. Story episodes are released on the last Sunday of every month. Additional episodes in the Wandering Bard historical mini-series will pop up from time to time. Until next we meet, around the fire, I've been Callum Bannerman, and you've been listening to Stories from the Heart.